Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, February 1st, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. The Sioux City Student and the Space Robot, Out of This World. Sioux City East grad had role in International Space Station Project. It's written by Jared McNett. Sioux City East grad Victoria Nelson went on several trips to Houston, Texas to see NASA's Johnston, Johnson Space Center while she was in high school. It was a privilege earned through success in a des- design competition for space. Nelson, who was learning about circuits by the time she hit fourth grade and went to world competitions for robotics before college, narrowed what she wanted to do with her life, either architectural engineering or mechanical engineering, prior to graduating. She just kept with it. All of those visits to mission control and ambitions for a future science career erupted Tuesday when a surgical robot she helped work on was launched into space from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. It was the first surgical robot on the International Space Station. It marks one of the first times remote surgery tasks are tested in space. Because she's logged so many hours on the project, Victoria said her excitement level on launch day, which she watched from afar, didn't quite match that of her parents. They're more excited than I am, honestly, she said. It's exciting, but hard to stay excited all the time from working on it for so long. The mission is meant to look at ways to develop surgical technologies capable of withstanding long-distance space travel. Working on the robot, called Space MIRA, was overseen by University of Nebraska-Lincoln engineering professor Shane Ferritor and doctoral student Rachel Wagner, and involved a number of students, including Nelson. It's probably been about a year and a half at this point, probably over 300 hours. It's hard to conceptualize, Nelson said, about working on space MIRA, which will conduct a series of experiments to compare surgical procedures in a zero-gravity environment to those back on Earth, as well as give a surgeon the opportunity to operate the robot remotely from hundreds of miles away. Nelson said she helped build the first prototype and kept track of paperwork. Nelson said one of the most challenging parts of the project was trying to keep track of all of the requirements and goals. NASA is strict, and it's a complicated project, she said. Initially, the plan was to launch in November 2023, but shipping issues pushed back that time frame. I always thought she'd probably be like an electrical engineer, take after me a little bit, David Nelson, Victoria's father, said. Over the years, he has worn a number of hats, including broker for Edward Jones and part-time automation robotics worker for Thompson Solutions Group. Victoria interned at the Sioux City Electrical and Tech Contractor. One small way David helped foster Victoria's scientific curiosity, he let her tinker with electrical and mechanical parts he had lying around the house. She still has kits she uses, said David. Since the work Victoria was involved with includes a medical component, her mom, Julie, a nurse, took a particular interest in the project. I was not outwardly interested in medical, my mom would say, but I do find it a very interesting and important field with robotics, Victoria said. She's happy with what I'm doing, but wishes I was more interested in the medical side. David went beyond simply letting Victoria work with various equipment of his. He also coached the robotics team Victoria was a part of. Known as First Tech Challenge, the competitions allow for students to design, build, program, and operate robots for head-to-head events. 
In the team's first year, David said they made it to the state competition in Ames and took second place. It was crazy, he said. Never really did sink in. At the time, the local robotics kids had to pile into a basement for meetings. Now, Nelson said, the group holds court in the Siouxland Robotics Club storefront at the Southern Hills Mall. Though Victoria was a student at Sioux City East, she actually went up against her school's robotics program at competitions. Trevor Miller, who advises the East High School Robotics Club and teaches space science, physics, and earth science, says that Victoria is one of the top students he's ever had. Diligent, responsible. She always did everything on her own. You didn't ever have to talk to her about getting her work done or even help her. She was resourceful enough she would figure out how to do it herself, Miller said. I haven't forgotten space science, Victoria said. Miller said she was one responsible for taking students to the Johnson Space Center and got to know Victoria, David, and Julie Nelson well. I've tried to stay in touch, and when she's back in town, she comes and helps us with the robotics competition, Miller said. When Victoria comes back, Miller said, he's asked her to to give a presentation to kids about some of the cool things she's done thus far. It's important to tell people your story. I know it seems you're bragging about yourself, but you can motivate and inspire a lot of people with your story, and there is not a huge presence of females in this science field, he said. Victoria did all of the NASA-related work while also focusing on her main thesis, making a virtual training simulator for surgery so that a surgeon doesn't even have to be in the hospital practicing surgery. It's been somewhat stressful, she said, about balancing the two. I chose to stay on because it's so interesting and it's definitely worth it, the numerous nights with the lack of sleep. Once she finishes with school, Victoria said a job she's been interested in since middle school. NASA is a stereotypical one, she said. Next up, sewer accounts for 82% of proposed fiscal year 25 budget expenditures. This is written by Dolly A. Butts. During a special budget review session Saturday, Sioux City Council members will get their first look at the proposed FY 2025 Capital Improvement Program, which totals more than $392 million. The CIP budget includes both city resources and non-city resources. The city resources for FY 2025 are $369,393,947, $369, an increase of 403.51% from the approved FY 24 budget, according to city budget documents. City resources include general obligation debt proceeds, which are repaid using property tax revenues, water and sewer utility funding, state revolving funds, which are loans the city repays over 20 years with water and sewer utility revenues, and other sources generated through city operations. Non-city resources include mostly grants and donations received from outside agencies. Grants have increased $14,026,034 from the approved FY 2024 budget. According to the budget documents, the significant increase in the proposed budget is due to the sewer state revolving loan for the wastewater treatment plant project. In fact, 82% of proposed CIP expenditures in the next fiscal year, which begins July 1st, would be for sanitary sewer. Last year, the council, in spite of objections from the business community, approved a residential, commercial, and industrial sewer rate hike to help fund a 
projected $470 million three-phase rebuild of the city's aging wastewater treatment plant. The council has committed to the first two phases of the project, which consist of rebuilding the plant at its current location and also slightly increasing the plant's capacity, which the Iowa DNR is requiring. The first phase will address all safety and reliability issues associated with the liquids stream treatment process, along with odor control at York, Floyd, and Riverside lift stations. The second phase will address reliability issues with the solids handling processes. In FY 2025, $300 million is being requested for construction and $12 million for odor control. The funding source for the $312 million is sewer Iowa revolving loan proceeds. The plant, 3100 South Lewis Boulevard, poses significant safety issues for city staff and has a history of compliance issues with the state. In January 2022, the DNR filed suit against the city over alleged repeated environmental violations at the plant, which dated back to March of 2012. The city faces fines adding up to millions of dollars. The city is paying for the wastewater treatment plant project with a combination of funding, including the Rate Increase and American Rescue Plan Act dollars. The city received $40.6 million from ARPA, a COVID relief package signed by President Biden in March of 2021. Due to the large amount of funds requested for various projects and the need to maintain prudent debt ratios, priorities had to be established. This year's top priorities included infrastructure, health and safety, quality of life slash economic development, the city budget documents stated. Other major projects include replacing and or refurbishing Sioux Gateway Airport's capital assets. According to the budget documents, a $6.98 million is being requested in FY 2025. However, $5.28 million of that will be FAA capital assistance. Another $330,000 will come from the Iowa DOT. Terminal infrastructure improvements, replacement of the runway snow broom, a south ramp design and overlay project, and an airport streets overlay project are all among the projects included in the upcoming budget year. Public Works is seeking just over $5 million for the reconstruction of the Bacon Creek Channel, which is between Gordon Drive and the Missouri River, and in severe need of rehabilitation or replacement, according to the budget documents. Total expenditures would include $3,102,500 from FEMA and $414,000 from Iowa Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Another $800,000 is being requested for a repaving project on Glen Oaks Boulevard from Outer Drive to Teton Trace. A $700,000 overlay project on Lorraine Avenue from South Lakeport to South Walker Streets is also planned in FY 2025. An additional $220,000 for engineering costs for those projects is also being sought by Public Works. The Sioux City Police Department is requesting $2.38 million for body-worn cameras, mobile audio-slash-video recorders, and mobile data terminals. The mobile audio video recorders and mobile data terminals were purchased five years ago, while the body-worn cameras were purchased three years ago. The maintenance agreement on the equipment is slated to expire in the fall. 
the department applied for a $500,000 Department of Justice grant, which was denied. Sioux City Fire Rescue has agreed to purchase the department's current mobile data vehicle terminals and vehicle mounts for $100,000, according to the documents. The city-owned convention center is seeking $500,000, including $300,000 for atrium call wall ceiling tiles, which are failing and need to be replaced, and $100,000 for sewer line replacement. Our final story from the front page of the journal today is entitled Lawmakers Table Reynolds' Disability Ed Bill. This is written by Caleb McCullough of the journal's Des Moines Bureau. Iowa House lawmakers decided to pause the advancement of a bill that would overhaul the state's area education agencies and allow schools to opt out of their special education services. The decision came after an hour-long subcommittee meeting on Wednesday in which school officials and parents of students with disabilities pleaded with lawmakers to kill the bill that they worried would hurt special education in the state and threaten funding for the dozens of other services they provide. Representative Republican Representative Schuyler Wheeler of Hull, the chair of the House Education Committee, said he and Representative Taylor Collins of Minneapolis, the other Republican on the subcommittee, would have further conversations before moving the bill forward. Democratic Representative Sharon Sue Steckman of Mason City voted against advancing the bill. The Senate scheduled a subcommittee meeting on the bill at 2 p.m. Wednesday. Reynolds said the bill, House Study Bill 542, is a response to lagging test scores for students with disabilities in Iowa and the comparatively high amount of Iowa spends on students with disabilities without seeing top-level test scores. Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. Under the proposal, which Reynolds amended this week, federal and state special education funds would be sent directly to schools who could then decide whether or not to contract with the AEAs. If they do not, schools would still have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities and could obtain that instruction from a third party like a private company. Currently, AEAs receive special education funding for the schools in their districts and are tasked with providing that education to those districts. AEAs would also be allowed to provide education and media services to schools if requested. Reynolds told reporters on Wednesday that the goal of the bill is to elevate education and outcomes for students with disabilities. We need to just step back and start to ask some of those questions with the overall objective of making sure that we're doing everything we can to get these kids with disabilities the education that they deserve and hopefully see better outcomes, she said. So you can't police yourself, get all the money, mandate I use you, and not be held accountable when the scores are not reflecting what they should be. That's unconscionable. Under the proposal, much of the AEA's operations and oversight would also come under the purview of the, Depart the State Department of Education. The property tax money that funds AEA education services would go directly to schools, and the levy that funds media services would be cut. Schools could still pay for media services with education service funds. Suzanne Castello, a resident of Kellogg who has a son with learning disabilities that attends Grinnell High School, said the bill is an extension of lawmakers' past 
actions directing money away from public education. She said the staff and administrators at Iowa's AEAs are vital for identifying the services that students need. If I had to choose between somebody in my community and somebody who's slick coming from the outside who's selling a service, I will choose the people that I know who are in my community doing the hard work on the ground, she said. In local and state news, kidnapping charge follows standoff near Remsen. This is read by Dolly Butts, Jared McNett, and Caitlin Yamada, journal staff writers. The dateline is Remsen, Iowa. Law enforcement authorities charged a 34-year-old Iowa man with one count of kidnapping in the first degree following a Plymouth County standoff in which which was preceded by a multi-county high-speed chase and a statewide Amber Alert Tuesday. Brandon Duong was arrested by police after an estimated two-and-a-half-hour standoff, which took place in the area of 160th and Sunset Avenue between Remsen and Marcus, Iowa, according to the Plymouth County Sheriff's Office and Woodbury County Scanner Traffic. At 3.40 p.m., an Amber Alert was issued for Greene County, for a black Toyota Tacoma transporting Bryson Duong, the seven-year-old son of Brandon Duong. A 2015 black Toyota Tacoma was spotted by the Woodbury County Sheriff's Office near Safford Avenue and 230th Street south of the Correctionville and Cushing area at approximately 4.40 p.m., according to the Plymouth County Sheriff's Office. Brandon Duong, age 34, took his seven-year-old biological son, Bryson Duong, from Green Elementary School in Jefferson, Iowa. A court order restricting Brandon Duong from having custody had been issued in December 2023, the Iowa Department of Public Safety said in a statement. The chase through Woodbury, Plymouth, and Cherokee counties exceeded speeds of 100 miles per hour. Pursuing officers at one point had lost contact with the suspect vehicle, but were able to relocate the vehicle near Highway 3 and Sunset Avenue east of Remsen in Plymouth County, the Plymouth County Sheriff's officers said. During the pursuit, it was learned that the suspect, Brandon Duong, was possibly armed with a long rifle. The vehicle continued at a short distance after being relocated and crashed, at which time the driver exited the vehicle with Bryson and proceeded on foot into a field armed with a rifle. Scanner traffic said the suspect was holding a child on his shoulders. Residents were urged to evacuate. Negotiators were on site and SWAT vehicles were utilized. The Iowa State Patrol deployed a second armored vehicle in an attempt to corral the suspect around 7.17 p.m. Police secured the weapon and moved the child away from the suspect at approximately 8 p.m. after lengthy negotiations. The suspect was taken into custody, according to scanner traffic. Brandon has been charged with one count of kidnapping in the first degree and will be transferred to the Greene County Jail, the Iowa DPS said. The Jefferson Police Department and Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation will continue their investigation to further understand the circumstances that necessitated the issuance of the Amber Alert. And tests show guardrail system can't handle electrics. This is written by Marjorie A. Beck of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Lincoln, Nebraska. 
Electric vehicles that typically weigh more than gasoline-powered cars can easily crash through steel highway guardrails that are not designed to withstand the extra force, raising concerns about the nation's roadside safety system, according to crash test data released Wednesday by the University of Nebraska. Electric vehicles typically weigh 20% to 50% more than gas-powered vehicles, thanks to batteries that can weigh almost as much as a small gas-powered car and they have lower centers of gravity. Because of these differences, guardrails can do little to stop electric vehicles from pushing through the barriers typically made of steel. Last fall, engineers at Nebraska's Midwest Roadside Safety Facility watched as an electric-powered pickup truck hurled, hurtled toward a guardrail installed on the facility's testing ground on the edge of the local municipal airport. The nearly four-ton 2022 Rivian RIT tore through the metal guardrail and hardly slowed until hitting a concrete barrier yards away on the other side. We knew it was going to be an extremely demanding test of the roadside safety system, said Cody Stoll with the facility. The system was not made to handle vehicles greater than 5,000 pounds. The university released the results of the crash test at a time when the rising popularity of electric vehicles has led transportation officials to sound the alarm over the weight disparity of the new battery-powered vehicles and lighter gas-powered ones. Last year, the National Transportation Safety Board expressed concern about the safety risks heavy electric vehicles pose if they collide with lighter vehicles. Road safety officials and organizations say the electric vehicles themselves appear to offer superior protection to their occupants, even if they might prove dangerous to occupants of lighter vehicles. The Rivian truck tested in Nebraska showed almost no damage to the cab's interior after slamming into the concrete barrier, Stoll said. But the entire purpose of guardrails found along tens of thousands of miles of roadway is to help keep passenger vehicles from leaving the road, said Michael Brooks, executive director of the nonprofit Center for Auto Safety. Guardrails are intended to keep cars from careening off the road at critical areas, such as over bridges and waterways, near the edges of cliffs and ravines, and over rocky terrain, where injury and death in an off-the-road crash is much more likely. Guardrails are kind of a safety feature of last resort, Brooks said. I think what you're seeing here is the real concern with EVs, their weight. There are a lot of new vehicles in this larger size range coming out in that 7,000 pound range, and that's a concern. The preliminary crash test sponsored by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Research and Development Center also crashed a Tesla sedan into a guardrail in which the sedan lifted the guardrail and passed under it. The tests showed the barrier system is likely to be overmatched by heavier electric vehicles, officials said. Ex-Sioux City cop gets five days jail for abuse. This is written by Nick Hytrek. A judge has sentenced a former Sioux City police officer who was arrested after authorities responded to a domestic dispute call to his home to five days in jail. In his written sentencing order filed late Tuesday, District Associate Judge Mark Cord said Bradley Ector can serve 10 days on electronic monitoring in lieu of spending the time in jail. If he does not arrange for electronic monitoring within 20 days, he will have to report to jail on March 15th to serve his sentence. 
Ector, age 50, was initially charged with domestic assault. He entered a plea agreement and on January the 4th pleaded guilty to reduced charges of assault and interference with official acts, both simple misdemeanors. He had faced a maximum of 30 days in jail on each charge. Cord sentenced Ector to 30 days and suspended 25 days of each sentence. The two sentences will be served concurrently or at the same time. Cord fined Ector a total of $500 and ordered him to complete an anger management class. Ector also was placed on six-month probation under the court's supervision. His case will be reviewed in September. Ector was arrested September the 29th after Woodbury County Sheriff's deputies were dispatched to his rural Sergeant Bluff home. Ector's wife had gone to a neighbor's home with scratches on her arm and told the resident she was scared and couldn't call police because her husband had her phone. She then returned home. When sheriff's deputies arrived at the Ector's home, they encountered Ector at the front door, and he was argumentative, uncooperative, and pulled away and resisted while they tried to keep him from re-entering the house. Two deputies received minor scrapes. Hector's wife had a scratch on her left elbow, a cut on her left thumb, marks on her right forearm, a scratch and bruising on her right wrist, and pain in her neck and left elbow, court documents said. In his guilty pleas, Hector admitted resisting or obstructing one or more deputies and that he did an act which was intended to cause pain or injury to his wife or resulted in physical contact or placed her in fear of physical contact. Sioux City Police Administrators placed Hector on administrative leave after his arrest. He later resigned during a department internal investigation. Now we've got some local briefs. First, one injured in SUV collision with ambulance. One person was hurt Wednesday after an SUV struck an ambulance that was transporting a patient through downtown Sioux City. The Ponca, Nebraska ambulance was eastbound on 5th Street with its lights and sirens activated and driving through a red light at Nebraska Street on the way to Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center at 10.39 a.m. when a woman driving a Nissan Rogue SUV north on Nebraska Street struck the ambulance broadside in the intersection. According to a Sioux City Police accident report, the woman said she heard the siren but did not see the ambulance until it was too late. She was not injured. Sioux City Community Policing Sergeant Tom Gill said the patient inside the ambulance was not injured but was transferred to a Sioux City Fire Rescue Ambulance to finish the patient's transport to Mercy One. A person who was riding in the ambulance with the patient had minor injuries. The SUV was totaled and damage to the ambulance was estimated at $3,000. No citations were issued to Gill. Or, excuse me, no citations were issued, Gill said. Next, man pleads guilty to federal drug charge. A Sioux City man has pleaded guilty in federal court of selling methamphetamine in the Sioux City area. Kenneth Doughty, age 39, entered his plea Friday in U.S. District Court in Sioux City to one count of conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Doughty admitted he took part in the sale of at least 3,500 grams of meth from January the 21st through June 2023. He also admitted to being a middleman helping others by acquiring and delivering money and meth to others. Doughty faces a possible maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. 
A sentencing date has yet to be set. Mom leads guilty, pleads guilty to smoking pot around son. Dateline is Prigmar, uh, Prig, Primgar, Iowa. A Hartley, Iowa woman has been sentenced to jail and probation for smoking marijuana around her three-year-old son. Victoria Barnes, age 25, pleaded guilty on Monday in O'Brien County District Court to a misdemeanor charge of child endangerment. As part of a plea agreement, a charge of neglect or abandonment of a dependent person was dismissed. In accordance with terms of the plea agreement, District Judge John Sandy sentenced Barnes to 364 days in jail, suspended 323 days, and gave Barnes credit for the remaining 41 days previously served. Barnes was fined $855 and placed on probation for one year. She also must undergo a substance abuse evaluation and comply with its recommendations. An Iowa Department of Human Services caseworker removed the boy from the Hartley home on November the 8th after receiving allegations of the use of illegal substances by Barnes and the child's father, Jonathan Peters. On November 17th, the caseworker notified authorities the boy's hair tested positive for the presence of marijuana. During interviews with investigators, Barnes admitted smoking marijuana a few times a week at a friend's house but not around her son. Peters said he usually smoked marijuana in the garage and sometimes in the house while on a different floor from his son. Peters, age 26, pleaded guilty of child endangerment and was sentenced to 364 days in jail with 328 days suspended and credit for the remaining 36 days previously served. Peters was fined $855 and placed on two years probation. Man who faked cancer sold meth in jail sentence. A man who faked a cancer diagnosis and sold methamphetamine while incarcerated in the O'Brien County Jail has been sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. James Sterner, age 67, of Tustin, California, which is charged with selling methamphetamine in the Sioux City area after receiving it by mail from August 2019 through October 2019, he pleaded guilty in June in U.S. District Court in Sioux City to one count of conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, after his arrest in 2020, Sterner, who had 10 prior drug-related convictions, was released from custody on pretrial supervision and did not show up for a plea hearing in October 2021 after submitting forged documents to the court falsely claiming he had cancer. Sterner was at large for more than a year until his arrest in April in Anaheim, California. After he was returned to Sioux City and had entered his guilty plea, he distributed meth-laced paper in the O'Brien County Jail where he was being held while awaiting sentencing. Manager pleads not guilty of stealing. Dateline Storm Lake, Iowa. A warehouse manager at the Tyson Foods Pork Plant in Storm Lake has pleaded not guilty of stealing more than $48,000 of truck equipment and meat from the company and reselling it for personal profit. Michael Masters, age 65, of Albert City, Iowa, entered his written plea Tuesday in Buena Vista County District Court to two counts of first-degree theft and two counts of second-degree theft. According to court documents, Masters was a warehouse manager at the Tyson plant at 
1009 Richland Drive on December the 5th, 2022, when he directed another employee under his supervision to take five truck refrigerator units valued at approximately $20,000 off the Tyson property. Masters later sold them for his own benefit. Masters also is accused of having an employee take three Tyson semi-box trailers valued at $18,130 from the property between June the 1st through the 28th, 2022, and two more valued at $8,272 on December the 7th, 2022, and sold them privately for profit. Between May 4th through 16th, Masters took approximately 24 boxes of meat valued at $2,166 from the plant, court documents said. And Mercy One Construction to close 5th Street. A construction project at Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center will cause a temporary closure of a portion of 5th Street for two days beginning Thursday. The installation of a new surgery air handling system will begin Thursday morning with the arrival of the crane. Crews will be using the crane to lift materials onto the roof of the south building starting in the afternoon. Work is scheduled to conclude Friday. All three lanes of traffic on 5th Street, starting past the entrance to the Circle Drive to Jennings Street, will be closed on Thursday and Friday. Traffic will be able to enter the Circle Drive and the parking ramp. Anyone entering the Circle Drive will have to exit through the parking ramp back onto 5th Street, then turn right on Jones Street to exit 5th Street. A second life for the project will begin in approximately two or three weeks. This project will take two to three days. Next is an article entitled, Bill Letting Lawmakers Halt Eminent Domain Advances. House Republicans Frustrated Senate Hasn't Taken Up Pipeline Bill. This is written by Aaron Jordan of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. An Iowa House subcommittee unanimously approved a bill Wednesday to allow the Iowa legislature to intervene in the permitting process of a pipeline or other energy project seeking to use eminent domain. Republican lawmakers who spoke at the hearing suggested that they were supporting House Bill House Study Bill 608 because the Iowa Senate so far has refused to take up another bill passed last year by the House that would require pipeline projects to have 90% of their roots easements voluntarily granted by landowners before using eminent domain to force them. I am very frustrated we even have to be here, said Representative Stephen Holt, a Republican from Denison. I have objection to these companies using the heavy hand of government to try to seize private property of landowners in my district for what is clearly a private economic development project that does not meet the constitutional requirements of public use. The Iowa Utilities Board is considering a permit application from Summit Carbon Solutions to build more than 680 miles of pipeline in Iowa to transport carbon dioxide from ethanol plants to an underground storage site in North Dakota. Summit has said it has voluntarily easements, voluntary easements on about three-quarters of the Iowa route, the Iowa Capital Dispatch reported, but still would need the board to grant eminent domain rights to force easements on the rest of the parcels. Five landowners spoke at the legislative hearing, saying the board's multi-week permit hearing in Fort Dodge felt like a farce because summit staff were given preferential treatment. The board met during fall harvest when it was harder for farmers to attend and because there was little notice before landowner testimony. 
Chaz Allen, Executive Director of the Iowa Utility Association, which represents investor-owned utilities, including BitAmerican Energy and Alliant Energy, was the only person to speak against the bill Wednesday. We rarely use eminent domain, but this bill could impact our efforts for reliability and bringing services to under unserved or underserved growing communities in Iowa, he said. HSB 608, which now goes to the House Judiciary Committee, would allow 21 members of the Iowa House or 11 members of the Iowa Senate to file a petition that would force the Utilities Board to stop eminent domain proceedings. A vote of or signed affidavits from at least three-fifths of the House and Senate would be required for the proceedings to resume. The bill would not be retroactive, so the review of Summit's proposal could not be disrupted. The measure could be used for any project seeking to use eminent domain, not just a pipeline. And we'll turn to the opinion page and we'll read an opinion by Jonah Goldberg, who is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. And it's entitled, Trump's rants about NATO are making the U.S. weaker. On September 12, 2001, 24 hours after the 9-11 tax, representatives of the then 19-member North Atlantic Treaty Organization convened to invoke Article 5 of the NATO Charter. It holds that an armed attack on one member shall be considered an attack against them all. This was the first and only time Article 5 has ever been put into effect. For the next two decades, NATO forces fought with us in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Last weekend, former President Donald Trump ranted against NATO at a rally in Las Vegas. We're paying for NATO, and we don't get so much out of it, he lied. And you know, I hate to tell you this about NATO. If we ever needed their help, let's say we were attacked, I don't believe they'd be there. I don't believe. I know the people. I know them. I don't believe they'd be there. Trump has long talked about NATO as if it's some sort of obsolete club where everyone is supposed to pay dues into a common kitty, but America has been left picking up everyone's tab. That's not how it works. NATO's standalone budget is about $3.5 billion, of which we pay 16%, which is roughly $560 million. A new aircraft carrier costs about 20 times that. All other NATO spending takes the form of domestic defense expenditures by individual members' states. When he was president, Donald Trump was right to pressure other countries to spend more, but now that they are spending more, he doesn't care. Trump's calumnies against NATO are offered to bolster his distortions about supporting Ukraine. In his telling, both are examples of how the United States gets ripped off by its allies, alliances, and foreign engagements. He claimed we've spent $200 billion plus on Ukraine, while the Europeans are in for $20 billion. This, too, is false, according to the Ukraine support tracker. In total assistance, the European Union has contributed more to Ukraine than the United States. We've committed not $200 billion plus, but about $75 billion in aid, about half of that in military assistance. The EU total is roughly 77 billion euros, or roughly $83 billion. As a share of GDP, America ranks 30th in Ukraine support, just behind Ireland and Malta. We look better if you only count military aid for the simple reason that we have the hardware Ukraine needs and Malta not so much. 
Indeed, the important thing, at least for domestic political purposes, about our military aid is that it doesn't take the form of giving Ukraine a blank check, as many Republicans claim. Nearly 90% of military aid dollars stay in America disproportionately in Republican districts and states because they're used to purchase the weapons that go to Ukraine. If you care about American relative military superiority, supporting Ukraine has been a huge bargain, degrading Russia's military, helping update ours, and bolstering the security of our biggest trading partner without putting American troops at risk. While it's always useful to point out Trump's thumbless grasp of the facts, none of this is exactly new information for people who actually care about the facts. The problem is how little facts seem to matter these days. Prior to Russia's lawless invasion of Ukraine, the argument that NATO was obsolete had some superficial plausibility. But now that Russia has repeatedly signaled that it is aims beyond Ukraine toward NATO members, those already weak arguments have evaporated. Certainly, our allies believe the threat is very real. Trump's denigration of NATO might sound like political toughness to his fans, but what Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping hear is evidence of NATO's weakness. NATO and our alliances generally make America stronger. They allow us to project power globally at a fraction of the cost to do it in other ways. For those who disagree, it's worth considering why the former president rests his case against NATO on so many lies. If the facts were on Trump's side, he'd offer some. You're listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments and, or concerns with this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we'll turn to the obituaries and we'll start by remembering Lawrence Larry Lansink, age 85, of Ida Grove, who passed away on Sunday, January the 28th, 2024, at the Horn Memorial Hospital of Ida Grove. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February the 3rd, 2024, at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church of Ida Grove. Father William A. McCarthy will officiate. Committal services will follow in the Sacred Heart Catholic Cemetery of Ida Grove, Iowa, with military rites conducted by the McNamara Moore Post 61 of the American Legion of Ida Grove. A visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday, February the 2nd, with a rosary service 6.45 p.m. and a 7 p.m. vigil service at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church of Ida Grove. The Christensen Van Houten Funeral Home of Ida Grove is in charge of funeral arrangements. Condolences may be sent online at www.christensenvanhouten.com. Next, we remember Ellen J. Kerr, age 72, of Lamars, who passed away on Monday, January the 29th. Mass of Christian burial will take place at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, February 6th at All Saints Catholic Parish, St. Joseph's Church in Lamars. Visitation will begin at 2 p.m. on Monday, February 5th at the Maurer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. Family will be present from 5 to 7 p.m. with the scripture prayer service at 7 p.m. Expressions of sympathy may be directed through maurerjohnsonfh.com. 
And we remember Janice E. Meek, age 68, who died on January the 25th. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 1st at Christy Smith Funerals Homes, Morningside, with the 6.30 p.m. prayer service. Funeral will be 10 a.m. Friday, February 2nd at Sunnybrook Church. And we remember Mark W. Crabtree, age 52, of Vermilion, who died Sunday, January the 28th at his residence. No services are being planned at this time. Now we remember Robert Rowe, who died on January the 29th at a local hospital surrounded by family. Services will be held 11 a.m. Saturday, February the 3rd at St. Thomas Episcopal Church, 1200 Douglas Street, with family present from 10 to 11 a.m., there will be a celebration of life to follow at the point after immediately following the services. The family would like to thank Unity Point Palliative Care and the visiting angels. Now we remember Daniel Patrick Garvin Sr. of Jackson, Nebraska, who passed away at home with his devoted wife at his side until the end. Per his wishes, cremation has taken place and a private burial will take place at a later date. Now we remember R. Conrad Douglas, age 72, of Sioux City, who passed away January 27th at a hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. A memorial service will be held 1 p.m. Thursday, February 1st, with a visitation one hour prior at Mayflower Congregational Church. Arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. And we remember Rachel J. Polkinghorn, age 55, of Moville, who died January 29th. Celebration of Life will be 11.30 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd at Family Worship Center. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 2nd with a prayer service at 6 p.m. at the church. Arrangements are being handled by Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City. And we remember Richard E. Lance, age 71, of South Sioux City, Nebraska, who passed away on Sunday, January 28th at a local hospital. Memorial service will be held at 7 p.m. Thursday, February the 1st at the Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home in South Sioux City with Father Brad Pelzel officiating. Visitation with the family present will begin at 6 p.m. Thursday evening. Online condolences may be offered to the family at www.meyerbroschapel.com. And finally, we remember Victoria Vicky Susan Whitgraff, who passed away on Friday, January the 26th, following a four-month battle with colon cancer. She was at home in Cherokee with her family beside her. A memorial service will be held 11 a.m. on Friday, February 2nd at Cherokee's Memorial Presbyterian Church with Pastor Philip Beiswinger officiating. A lunch will be served at the church immediately following the service. Visitation will take place from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday evening at the church lounge. The personnel at Greenwood Schubert Funeral Home are assisting the family with the memorial service and committal arrangements. Memorial gifts may be directed to the Cherokee Rotary Club for its Backpack Buddies program or to the Memorial Presbyterian Church Foundation. Now we jump to the sports page and we'll start with what's on TV in the sports world today. In college men's basketball at 6 p.m. on CBSSN, it's Delaware at William & Mary. On ESPN2, it's Mullane, Tulane at SMU. And on ESPNU, Longwood at High Point. 7.30 p.m. has on the Big Ten Network has Wisconsin at Nebraska. And the Pac-12 Pac Network has California at Arizona. 8 p.m. on CBSSN, it's Sam Houston State at Western Kentucky. 
ESPNU carries Stanford at Arizona State. ESPNU has Youngstown State at Wright State. 8.30 p.m. Sorry, is it 9.30 p.m.? I'm not sure if these are Eastern times or Central times. 9.30 p.m. ESPN, Oregon at Southern Cal. Pac-12 Network has Oregon State at UCLA. 10 p.m. on CBSN. It's San Diego at San Francisco, and ESPNU has UC Davis at UC Santa Barbara. Women's College Basketball, 5 p.m. The ACC Network has Virginia at Virginia Tech. Big Ten Network has Wisconsin at Ohio State. 6 p.m. on SEC Network, Tennessee at Georgia. 7 p.m. on the ACC Network, it's North Carolina at North Carolina State. 7.30 p.m. on ESPN, it's Baylor at Texas, and 8 p.m. on SEC's network, it's Alabama at Arkansas. In NBA basketball at 6.30 p.m., TNT has the Lakers at Boston, and at 9 p.m. on TNT, you can catch Philadelphia at Utah. And at 6 p.m. in NFL football on ESPN, you can see the NFL Pro Bowl Skills Showdown. National Hockey League on ESPN2 at 5 p.m. It's the 2024 NHL All-Star Player Draft. Top story on the sports page is entitled Back and Better Than Ever. MOC Floyd Valley's Van Kalsbeek sees game differently after injury. This is written by Ryan Timmerman, Dateline Orange City, Iowa. Injuries don't typically yield positive outcomes, but Jesse Van Kalsbeek isn't a typical high school basketball player. When the MOC Floyd Valley senior was forced to the sideline this season, he turned his attention elsewhere, and the journal's Athlete of the Week came out of it a better player for it. I just put trust in God's plan, Van Kell's beak said. I knew he had a plan for me, and I think taking that time off helped get me ready for the season and ready for what's about to come. Watching practice when you're not participating in it You can see why the coaches do certain things and have an opportunity to think about what you need to do when you get back. Van Kalsbeek missed six games earlier this season after breaking the third metacarpal on his hand, yet MOC Floyd has stayed afloat this season by going 14-3. The Dutchmen are currently ranked ninth in Class 3A. With its star back in the lineup, MOC Floyd Valley is eyeing its ninth state appearance in program history and first since 2015-2016 to end this season. The injury was tough for Van Cal's back, Cal's beak, excuse me, as he balanced his obvious disappointment with his duties with the team. He was devastated when he got hurt, said MOC Floyd Valley head coach Lauren DeYoung. The initial report was that he could be out for the season, but he kept coming to practice every day and became another coach for us at practice. Through it all, he remained a phenomenal teammate. When he was out, he was a tremendous cheerleader for his teammates and became a great coach. He was really invested in helping the younger guys, and I think we surprised some people by doing some really good things while he was out. Shortly after returning, Van Kalsbeek topped 1,000 career points for the Dutchman. That's something that's been one of my goals since I was a kid, he said. It's not something I've thought a lot about since I've started playing varsity, but getting it was a special moment for me. Van Kelsbeek has been MOC Floyd Valley's leading scorer for the past two seasons and is leading the Dutchman in scoring again this season as his 23.3 points per game ranks in the top five among players in Class 3A. 
His 9.3 made field goals per game is second most in 3A, and he's also grabbing 9.7 rebounds a game to lead the squad. Since the start of his sophomore hoops campaign, the Dutchmen have went a combined 45 wins, 18 losses. Van Kelsbeek is a two-time All-Sioux Land Conference selection and received a second-team All-State nod in 3A last season after he led MOC Floyd Valley in scoring while shooting nearly 60% from the field and a team-high 7.2 rebounds a contest. While his performance on the court over the years made him a hot commodity for a variety of prospective college programs, the senior couldn't deny the pull of his lineage as he's set to follow his three older brothers to Northwestern College, where brother Alex is currently a junior. All three of my older brothers went there, Van Kelsbeek said. I spent so much time there watching my brothers, I just loved the atmosphere there. I built a relationship with the coaches there and I already feel like they've made me a better player. I look forward to trying to get better every day there over the next four years. It's been a dream to go there. At six foot one, Van Kelsbeek does a little of everything for the Dutchman, from banging around with opposing bigs in the paint to bringing the ball up the court as a primary ball handler and playmaker. I just try to do whatever my team needs me to do to give us the best chance to win, he said. If that means focusing on rebounding, I'll do it. If that means playing in the post or po- being the point guard, I'll do my best to fill that role. Still, the judgment persevered through Van Bekelsbeek's injury and welcomed him back with a newfound confidence. Being able to give guys more time to show what they can do was good for us, Van Kelsbeek said. Guys stepped up and took on bigger roles that they're still fulfilling. If I wasn't out, maybe they don't get a chance. We're getting better every single game and playing together better more and more. I think we're going to get so much better by the end of the season. Van Kelsbeek wasn't the only player to miss time for MOC Floyd Valley, but the Dutchman hope health is on their side for the remainder of the season as the team looks to peak heading into the postseason. Jesse's been hurt. We've had some other guys hurt or miss time with illness, DeYoung said. But the good news is that we have another few weeks to get right and we're starting to get healthy. But he spun his injury into something of somewhat of a good thing because he since come to me and said he sees things now that he didn't see on the court before. Along with Van Kalsbeek, the Dutchman have junior Blake Albers averaging 12.9 points per game while juniors... Amon Langton and Owen Vanderpaal are between 8 and 10 points a game. Additionally, MOC Floyd Valley has four players averaging over four rebounds per game. Those guys that made the plays without Jesse and kept it up, said DeYoung, they had to without him, and now we have multiple guys we trust to make big plays for us. And Lester named Hawkeye's new OC. 46-year-old spent time with Packers, Western Michigan. Former Western Michigan coach Tim Lester was hired Wednesday to turn around Iowa's underperforming offense. Lester replaces coach Kirk Ferentz's son, Brian Ferentz, who finished this past season on the staff after athletic director Beth Getz told him in late October that he wouldn't return in 2024. The 46-year-old Lester spent a year as a senior analyst for the Green Bay Packers after Western Michigan fired him in 2022. His experience as both a head coach and a coordinator at several different levels of football gives him an excellent perspective, Kirk Ferentz said. I believe his expertise and personality make him a perfect fit for this position. 
Lester was 37 and 32 in six seasons at Western Michigan, where he was a star quarterback in the late 90s. He previously was quarterback coach at Purdue in 2016 and offensive coordinator at Syracuse in 2014-2015. He also has coached at the Division II and Division III levels. When you have coached at every level of football like I have, you have a true appreciation for an opportunity like this at the University of Iowa, Lester said. I know the tradition and history of the Hawkeye program, and I'm excited to get to work with the outstanding players and coaches. Iowa's had the Big Ten's least productive offense two straight years and ranked second to last in 2021. The system under Brian Ferentz was panned for being outdated and unimaginative. Iowa was one of two teams in the nation with a pass completion rate under 50% this past season. Seven wide receivers have entered the transfer portal over three years. The Hawkeyes have still managed to win 28 games since 2021, including two 10-win seasons, largely because of a defense that consistently ranks among the nation's best. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Sioux City Journal. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.